Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. We could do the Nog update. You want to? You want to do do Nogcast? Nog. We could do Nogcast. Nog oh, this is the best way to get Harry to kind of stop talking to me. Uh, just is <laughs> just start bringing up Nog. You started in every to rank, social situation. Rank ways I feel like to if, I, to... if you if I was ever going to stop talking to you, I would have done so by now. Ouch! You're saying that I could get away with pretty much murder at this point. More or less, you would begrudgingly like, yeah. continue to talk to me. I just show up on this podcast like nothing was wrong. And just You're like, well, I don't want to wait for summary. Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> I, I figured, I figured Harry wasn't talking to you because you two were going to do Beancast, and now you're talking about Nogcast. Oh, no, Beancast is a yeah. um, Beancast is a separate venture. Yes, right. I was like, that yeah. hasn't happened. It's been like three years. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'm just trying to keep everybody accountable. It's been oh. on the back, back, uh, back beaner. Get it? Be, be, don't talk too much about Beancast because do. I don't want anybody to take the idea. It is a great idea. Um, but uh, It's an you idea. Know, you, you can't uh, – <laughs> I, I talked to some lawyers. You can't copyright any of this. There's no trademarks for Beancasting. So we just got to keep it on the DL. There's no trademarks involved with anything associated with podcasts. That's how we can get away with using the music that we use and um, – and everything, and just what? pulling direct quotes from the movies and in all. It's yeah. What phrases? What phrases? That really, but what oh, phrases do you of. think would get would get us absolutely like would throw up Apple or whoever's auto like algorithms? If I say like music piracy and <laughs> Apple content flagging and Google Nintendo terms of service. Oh wow! Okay, well, I just mean getting flagged. I don't mean getting like sniped in my bedroom. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We'll probably be murdered by. I think even if we, e- even if we like gently alluded to like a Disney property, we'd probably yeah, get right. slammed for Disney's like if, Aladdin. Have we ever done a Disney? You movie got a friend in me. Sorry, we did a whole table rate of a Goofy movie. Ooh. Oh well, yeah. I mean, that's oh, a we're probably good, good then. That is actually probably the the most that's the closest thing we've done. Yeah. Huh. Well, something to think about. Huh. We're talking about bean casting, and meanwhile, we've been casting. Am I right, Jason? Hey. We have been casting for Trilove. It's a literal uh, roundtable bean cast about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon, the, c- the, the cinema we're actually talking about at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org, where you can get tickets to showings for movies like the remaining films in the Eric Romer's 80s series. My name is Jason. Uh, I make, excuse me, I help make this podcast. I am also a metropolitan man and you can find me on twitter at nintendoofus i'm cody narvison i do play sports on weekends and you can find me on twitter at cody underscore bh how did i know that was the one you were going to go with cody it's obvious come on uh vacations agree with me i'm harry mackin and you can find me on twitter at shiitake harry and i'm aaron i have a best friend boyfriend and true love and i am lucky they're all the same person you you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. 
And you can find the movie that we're about to talk about, Boyfriends and Girlfriends, a 1987 film directed by French filmmaker Eric Romer at the Trilon. Uh, go to Trilon.org to get tickets. It is playing over the next uh, few days, and there's more in the series that uh, I'm sure we'll all enjoy, and maybe you'll see us there. But for right now, we should talk about what this movie is before we start talking about what this movie is. And to give us a little bit of that, I've got Aaron on the line. Aaron? Yes, uh, Aaron here. Uh, yes, we're talking about Boyfriends and Girlfriends, 1987, Eric Romer. Film stars, bunch of people, French names again, film stars. <laughs> <laughs> Rub my hands together. Good luck. Emmanuel, up. Emmanuel Chalet, maybe? Uh, Sophie Renoir? Anne-Laurie Moiret, maybe? Uh, Eric Villiard? Uh, uh, Francois-Eric Gendron? Uh, it's it a is, group of it, it is very funny just as an introduction. Five, you know? It is very funny that Aaron plays like the most esoterically named video games of the world. He's got like Morrowind and a bunch of Gene Wolfe books under his belt, and he can't yeah. literally cannot pronounce like common French names. That's the fu- I, that's the funny thing to me. I, I it is weird, but like I, I didn't take French in high school and like none of my favorite things draw from like French. Like, you give me a really fucked up German word. You know how German words can be, like, super long (laughs) because they're, like, all nouns combined together uh, or all, like, adjectives combined together. Uh, Drachen, Toderhose, and whatever. Uh, I'm fine with German words, but but French cannot, don't know what letters they skip, but none of it. None of it. So, anyway, Mm. there's a group group of five people who are played by actors who are uh, young professionals living in the town of Serge Pontois Pontois uh, is a, it's kind of a small oh little God. hip town. What? Pontois. What did you just say? P O N T O I S E. What, what do you say? This is a made up language for <laughs> fools. Do you Unlike understand? Unlike every other language. Well, yes, the ones that I am capable of reading are fine. Uh, it, it, look, it's a they—they they all live in this trendy little kind of town, just like outside of of Paris, a little bit. Uh, Chalet's character, who's kind of, I think, generally the main character of this film, uh, is a woman named Blanche. Uh, she's recently moved to the town after accepting a government job, and she she meets uh, a woman named Leia one day while eating lunch. Uh, Leia has a boyfriend named Fabian uh, that she's somewhat apprehensive about kind of due to their conflicting personalities. Um, And much of the film kind of generally focuses on Blanche's growing relationship with Fabian uh, and how it conflicts with her friendship with Leia. Ultimately, though, all of the characters in the film um, kind of over the the course of the the length of the film grow in their relationships with one another um, and kind of in in ways that none of them uh, expect. Uh, If this seems kind of Hard to pin down or describe. Um, it's because it largely is, right? Uh, Boyfriends and Girlfriends is yet another film in Romer's Comedies and Proverbs series, uh, in which each of the six films in the series starts off with a proverb. Uh, this film's proverb is, My friends, friends are my friends. Boyfriends and Girlfriends was also the last film in that series uh, that Robert uh, made. Um, we covered the first film, The Aviator's Wife, last week. Uh, similar to The Aviator's Wife, Boyfriends and Girlfriends, isn't really concerned with having kind of this moving or especially uh, fluid narrative. Instead, Romer seems interested mainly in, in slowly developing the relationships between these characters, uh, as well as portraying modern, urban, mostly young life in France in the 1980s, as these characters discover themselves and their loves, uh, their love and feelings for others. Uh, Jason, what did you think? I uh, think that was a really good summary to begin with. And two, I think um, that I... 
maybe a little bit less or in a different way. We'll see. And still enjoyed this movie quite a bit. I feel like I'm a fan of Eric Rimmer's work at this point, um, wherein in, in the extent that like, like you said, it is less about the plot and the actual happenstance than it is about slowly developing characters, um, you know, sort of chiseling them out of marble. And in this movie, uh, I think maybe more so just because there are more surfaces, more characters, there are more of those reflective surfaces, more of those mirrors for people to start to like, chip away at their own identity of self and sort of what they want out of, uh, you know, themselves and out of the world. We start with the two characters of, uh, Leia and, um, OG Blanche who both like are almost opposites attract style. Like Leah is more, um, uh, I guess she wants things to change a lot. She wants, uh, you know, constant evolution and motion. She wants to challenge and play her frivolous little games. I forget the actual term that she uses, but she actually describes the way that she approaches men and her boyfriend in particular as like little games and how he doesn't quite play ball and he doesn't like fight for her kind of thing. She wants that very passionate external love language style and Blanche, uh, you know, she has not really been in a long-term successful relationship. She is more defined by her desire for um, stability and some form of like, uh, I guess more inner peace than external externalizations of love. Um, so from the get, we've got like two characters who are sort of painted in opposition to each other and who still like see a lot in each other that they really like. And that develops over the course of the movie to the point, like, where even textually, like even on screen, they start wearing clothes that are very similar to each other. Harry was pointing out while we were watching this afternoon that um that they like by the end of the movie, uh, at least Leah has started wearing um a lot of polka dotted stuff and a lot of the uh, actual clothing that um Blanche started out wearing the movie. Uh, wearing in the movie and Blanche's sense of fashion and style has sort of evolved in more uh, into more of a, an attractive sort of flamboyant um, uh, accentuating uh, wardrobe than the very like sort of simple straightforward eighties style that she had at the beginning of the movie. Um, I'm going a little bit further down that rabbit hole than I had hoped, but like uh, there is um, I'm trying to get to my next point. Uh, it, I like, I guess the mood that it sets in that it, welcomes you into the story. It sort of sets up the characters. Um, you know, in the first 20, 30 minutes, we've met pretty much everybody who's important to the story. Uh, and then it builds complications from there and it moves through plot elements. So like twistingly and sort of like, uh, I don't know with that sort of French je ne sais quoi of, um, you know, how, why is somebody acting a certain way or feeling a certain way that they are until you get this like knotted ball of tension that you don't realize is quite there until the final seat of the movie, which is like really fun triumphant scene i think um rather than being cued uh by like over romantic cinematography or any music at all uh there's the, like the overall mood of the movie is more reflected in characters faces um again while harry and i were watching uh blanche in particular just has an incredibly expressive like uh sort of scene stealing face where she like if he, if she's pissed about something or if she's trying to uh you know give the uh, the bedroom eyes or whatever like she really does command the entire mood of any scene she's in and i think that's true of any character uh who comes on a screen it's uh especially you know when they're um sort of interacting in that sort of flirty way between the boys and the girls uh and i think that makes this movie a lot more I think that's why this movie still has that very strong character for forward focus despite being uh you know effectively doubled the size of the really important cast from the aviator's wife, the previous rumor film we discussed. Um, I think overall the, the, like the broader statement, I think this movie is trying to make is that the feeling these characters think maybe because of their environment, maybe because of like the kind of lives they live in the place they're in and the time they're in, they think that the feelings they have for these people uh, and the people they have them for 
aren't necessarily attached to the people, but like sort of an innate thing about them. Um, I'm thinking about the way that Lee always describes like her fun games and what she wants and like how uh, uh, Fabian isn't quite right for her because he won't fight for her, that kind of thing. Um, they think that it's more like their, their preferences, their desires, their, their, um, their passion, I guess, is more part of them than it is a reflection of somebody else that they, that they see, that they want, that they love. Uh, and they feel like they can have those feelings because of, as a result of that mindset, they feel like they can have those feelings without those people. Um, you know, Blanche is sort of, uh, torn between Alexander and Fabian, um, where like you sort of see the meet cute, the spiral of her relationship and Fabian's life. And then, uh, you sort of have this blank, uh, like void of Alexander and whether or not he, he is going to reciprocate her feel his, uh, her feelings for him. Um, and it's instead of like, uh, instead of making that part of I guess instead of making that part of the overarching plot, it's more of an internal character thing and, uh, and, and like defines those dyads more than anything, uh, more than it like actually guides the story. Um, the last thing I wanted to touch on is Aaron, you brought up the like modern urban young life and the portrait of, of that, that this movie paints. Uh, and it really like, it serves the mood, but the only thing that these people have to worry about is their like dramatic, uh, trysts and spats right there. They work in government or they have PhDs or whatever. And all they, all we see them do anyway is recreate. We just have like cuts from vacation to vacation to weekend to vacation. Uh, we rarely see anybody at work. We rarely see anybody, uh, like in meaningful, like in boring transit, I guess. Anytime we see anybody moving from place to place, it's literally it, only in order to bump into somebody else. Um, I don't know that that's like a standout special or important thing about the movie to me, but it does like add to that sort of airy moving flowing motion of the movie to me. Um, anyway, yeah, thumbs up, uh, for boyfriends and girlfriends, uh, I guess originally in French, as Aaron mentioned, titled, uh, my girlfriend's boyfriend, which is a more direct to the point title. And I think probably the wrong one for this movie. Um, but uh, that's long enough for me. I'm going to hand off to my friend, Cody. Wow. Thank you. Um, thanks to one of my boyfriends, Jason Daphnis, for tossing that to me. Um, yeah, wait, this wait, is wait. One of, one of, what's going well, on here? No, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it after. We'll talk, uh, uh, hello, everyone. Um, <clears throat> hi, I'm, I'm Cody. Uh, I was not here for uh, the Aviator's Wife episode, which I was very sad to miss um, because I quite like that movie and um, I'm quite liking this Romer series so far. Um, so I obviously watched Boyfriends and Girlfriends, did see The Aviator's Wife, and I did see um, My Night at Mods a few days before we all watched Aviator's Wife just because I wanted to get my feet wet with Romer a little bit. Um, and I heard that it was like vaguely holiday adjacent, um, uh, sort of thematically. So, uh, I'm liking his movies uh, a whole bunch, so, uh, so far as we go here. I think this is a great series to sort of end the calendar year on. So shout out to John for scheduling, um, a great slate, uh, up to now. So, um, yeah. And, and scheduling logistics meant we couldn't see this movie at the trial on before this conversation. I don't know if it was the digital transfer that we all kind of watched or, or what it was, but this does have, I think is, um, it's been gestured at so far. Uh, the, uh, it has a, a certain different modern flavor than like maybe the aviator's wife did that sort of soft, corporate um like metro area environment that we're talking about there's that park of office buildings the opening scenes almost feel like we're in a mall or like we're, we're kind of like bopping around a food court or something uh blanche sets her own schedule we get the feeling she's not like consumed by her career um kind of like 
what Jason was saying, you know, we get this impression of like easy, steady income. You know, I feel like I'm like watching an episode of Seinfeld. We're just like, okay, every, everybody, everybody has money. We don't need to know the details. Um, and then we also get like the, like the, the casual, some casual like city wandering through all this as well, which weirdly made me think of rebels of the neon God. Um, kind of an odd one to, to think about with this movie, but that's how my brain works. Um, and yeah, like aviator's wife and actually my night at moths too. Um, you know, this movie we're, we're attacking these character interactions and relationships from every possible angle. Like Jason said, like chiseling them out of marble, uh, right. We're, we're seeing each person in a variety of, uh, different lights. Uh, Fabian, for example, has a, sort of an off-putting first impression. Uh, at least I thought so. And then we see him gradually develop into an almost entirely different person and uh, in a new light, a completely different feeling partner to Blanche, um, as the movie goes. And then Leia, you know, her first impression, we, the first impression we get of her, especially juxtaposed against Blanche, you know, she's cool and dynamic and sort of like a, a nomad, a nomad, not necessarily tied down um, to like uh, an office quite yet. But we see how that feels later as we learn more about uh, her and, and Blanche and Fabian. And also just once we start seeing her, <clears throat> excuse me, interact with uh, Alexander, um, I'm not, I'm going to try, but I'm not going to pronounce any of these names correctly. Apologies uh, to our French listeners. Uh, Romer, he, um, he does a cool thing. Well, he does a lot of cool things, but like when he pits or not pits, but lets two people sort of play off one another for a long time, uh, maybe even perhaps a little too long. And then we have that, that third big character eventually returns to the movie uh, and like the things that that person says and does have more impact just because we've been waiting for it and waiting for it, like to see the reaction. So like in this, uh, you know, here, uh, Leia, she comes back from holiday after Blanche and Fabian have had their time together. Aviator's wife, um, as the fellas talked about on the episode of uh, Francois and Lucy, they really own the middle portion of that movie. Like it's a very standout stretch of the film. And eventually the movie does pivot back to Anne by, you know, the third act. And, and in both of those cases, Leia and Anne, <clears throat> excuse me, my my, oh, my voice is, is waning as I'm uh, pouring over this film so much. Um, Leia and Anne, they could almost be framed as like antagonists. Um, if, if, you know, if we were interested in that, if the movies were interested in that, but because their interiorities by that point are so rich, it's more like, you know, they're in opposition to what the people we've been following want, but they're not like, they're not wrong to want what they want. Um, in most cases, uh, and Romer's movies, like small sample size, obviously, but they seem to be all about giving context for like every possible person and, and social situation and interaction. And I love that shit. Um, so I'm uh, looking forward to watching more of his stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know the, the who's on first, not quite who's on first, but like in the same vein as like a who's on first gag to end the movie. There's tennis in this movie. We don't actually see it. Uh, we're just like, this is the French open and now we're leaving the French open. Um, <laughs> so, uh, dock some points for not showing the, some tennis action. Um, mostly kidding but yeah i don't know it has a lot of everything um and i had a, a lot of fun watching this i think it's great how much rumor does a ton with relatively little with relatively experienced actors the final products uh, you know these movies have all been excellent so far and i'm uh, like i said i'm looking forward to, to seeing more of them and uh, oh sorry who's that uh who's that lady killer waltzing over here and are those swim trunks Okay, okay, uh, it's it's Harry here. I um I, I will hand Harry the mic so he can drop a, a smooth line on us, that Romeo. Hey, thanks, Cody. Uh, I'm glad you noticed my very small, revealing, uh, bright blue Speedo. Um, one thing about the guys in this movie, Aaron, you really nailed it in your letterbox review, what it was like. All of these guys look like absolute like toadies until they're in swimsuits, and then it's like, I've never been that fit in my life. God damn it. Does this, uh, does this apply to... 
because I do. I I've I've mentioned that about Eric. Uh, oh fuck, you gotta say the guy's last name, Villiard. Uh, but I do think the the final shot where uh, Francois Eric Gendron is sitting at the restaurant. Uh, it's it's Alexander is sitting with Leia. Maybe mm-hmm. the coolest a guy has ever looked at a movie. Like he looks great. He's amazing, amazing looking yeah. dude. Everybody in this film is attractive. Oh, very, very much so, which is appropriate because everybody in this movie is in love with each other, uh, non-exclusively, right? Um, yeah, I really, really like this movie a lot. I think I might like The Aviator's Wife more just because The Aviator's Wife is about turmoil and yearning and I'm a broken person. But um, I, I, what I really love about this movie is that it's, a, it's sort of a uniquely movie, or uniquely strange movie to, to podcast about, right? Because I think that the the overarching sort of thematic narrative at play here really plays second fiddle to the moment to moment evolutionary interactions between each of the characters and the sort of like very deep, very intimate inner workings and inner developments of these characters via conversations with one another. We really see all of these people, uh, especially Blanche, of course, but Leah um, and uh, and the boyfriends as well come a long way and they come a long way into themselves and towards themselves to the point where they sort of end up where they started, but that doesn't sort of delude or invalidate the amount of journey that they had to do to get there, right? And so, like, in, in a unique way for this movie, I think that um, the sort of the the overall idea or the proverb at play here is actually not really the, the point, in, in my mind, so much as... Um, just sort of depicting how it happens and making wh- how it happens feel real, right? Because this this movie is, is sort of Shakespearean in the sense, or Shakespearean comedy in the sense that everybody ends up with the person they're supposed to end up with, and all is well. And there is a there is turmoil in the in the form of disagreement and in the form of misunderstanding. Um, but you kind of know everything's going to work out, or at least I did, especially by the last scene, although it was very tense. Um, but at the beginning of this movie, the, the people who are the people that they are um, are not yet they're, – they're not in a place where they want to be those people. And so they, they have to find these relationships to sort of accentuate and complement and play off of each other. And we get to see all of these very intimate movements within that where Leah kind of becomes more like Blanche as she discovers characteristics of Blanche and her lifestyle that she appreciates and vice versa with Blanche. But of course, these people continue to be who they are and they end up with the people that are obviously complementary with them. And there's sort of a this is really like a coming of age movie in a lot of ways, right? Like Blanche learns to embrace who she is. She learns that she doesn't want or need the sort of excitement that Alexander would offer her. Um, Leah, meanwhile, sort of learns to embrace the fact that she is this person who loves the game and she loves the chase and she loves having someone witty to play off of. Right? I think her her conversation with Alexander is just dynamite at the near the end of this movie. Right? Where she's like she's like kind of taunting him and playing with him, and it doesn't. And, and he is completely picking up the ball and rolling with it in the same way that he had always or that she had always wanted Fabian to do. Meanwhile, we see Blanche sort of attempt something like that um, in her bedroom with Fabian the day after their affair, and it completely falls flat just the way Leah said it would, right? All of these characters are absolutely right about one another in a really fascinating way to the point where they will often describe themselves in exactly the fashion that they had been described in earlier conversations. I think Alexander does that and Leah does it. And I, I believe even Blanche does it, although she is um, she has a little bit more um, inner distress about who she is. But it, it's a really cool um, 
dynamic. And it, to the point where it's sort of like these people are not only they, – they don't just know each other. They're sort of defining one another in real time, right? It's like their their exchanges and their interplay are really forms of self-identification and forms of sort of play toward self-discovery. Um, and I think that this movie captures that in a really powerful way. Um, Jason and I had talked about how um, I think Eric Romer is a real genius with cin- cinematography and he's a real genius with costume design and color. But I think where these movies really shine is that none of the conversations in this movie feel at all incidental to me, if, if that makes sense. It's like these conversations are very long and at times they feel even trivial in the sense that these characters are talking around the subject or they're, they're talking about, you know, um, their weekend plans or, or what they're doing right now or where they're going. And it feels sort of, um, unimportant to the actual plot, but at no point was I less than captivated by these conversations, right? Because everything that wasn't said was as important as what was being said. And I think that he has such a great control over, the sort of emotive subtext of a conversation such that um, when characters discuss what's happening after a conversation, because that's really all this movie is, right? Is it's like a conversation happens and then the next scene, the characters talk about what we just saw. It happens over and over again, but they're always right. They always really nail the emotion and the character of the conversation that had just happened, even though it it can be quite subtle, right? I mean, like, I'm thinking about when Blanche is weeping because she sort of turned down um, Alexander, and then they talk about how that happened and how she was not prepared for it, and so he gave her an opening and she, she fumbled it, and, like, when they talk about that, we know that it's true because we saw that happen. And even though the movie didn't spell it out at that time, all of us were sort of prepared with the emotional sort of language that the movie trains us with to understand that as well as we did. And so I think that this is a movie that really like draws you into the mind space and the the physical space of these characters and, and lets you get to know them. And it makes their journey toward themselves feel so true and organic, right? And it makes the final moment where literally they they pair off these characters and they're wearing, um, the women are wearing blue and the guys are wearing green and the right blue is finally with the right green and then they move off together and it's it's perfect and it's sort of like, there it was, right? It was like these characters were on their own interior journeys that they needed each other for so that they could understand themselves um, and now they've sort of found that. Right. And so it it ends up utopian despite all of the uh, distress and all of the turmoil that occurred on the way. I don't know why I'm using the word turmoil so much today. I really like it, I guess. Maybe it's the oil. Um, But anyway, I I like this movie a whole lot. Um, I think you should see it at the Trilon. Um, I think that when this episode comes out, you'll have one more day, I believe, to see it at the Trilon. But uh, so catch it if you can. And now I'm going to pass it over to my buddy, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you're, I'm, I'm probably going to repeat a bunch of stuff you just said, but I think, uh, first of all, the reference to, to Shakespeare is interesting, right? Uh, it's one thing that a bunch of reviewers actually kind of referenced uh, in regard specifically to, to this film when I was kind of doing some research. Um, I think it, it does feel like that, right? Like in, in the way that like Shakespearean comedies, have, they all end in this kind of this marriage, right? Like this doesn't end right. in, this, in a marriage or two marriages uh, because this is Paris in the 1980s and everybody's too cool to get to, to get married that young. Right. But like if this was made a few hundred years ago, they, they absolutely would be getting married at the end of this movie. 
um, that that's kind of what this is, right? Um, and, and kind of in that way, I, I do think this movie is, um, I don't know, finger food, maybe comfort food is a better kind of uh, a term for it, uh, which I think is kind of odd to say, right? Because Romer is a, um, he's a critically acclaimed kind of important uh, quote, quote, important filmmaker, right? He's a very talented filmmaker. Um, and even even more so, I think so much of his films, uh, uh, at least the ones that we've discussed so far, um, they, they, they rely on subtlety, right? They rely on like small interactions between characters, which, which Harry kind of talked about, um, the facial expressions of characters, like these, these very small, like understated, but really wonderful performances. Um, and I, I think that this film can kind of in that way, largely be described as like hot young people doing shit. Right. Um, I think that in, in relation to the aviator's wife, which we talked about last week, um, this is kind of like more of a, a good vibe movie. Um, you know, there's, there's a point that I made last week when talking about the aviator's wife, where there's this underneath, there's this layer of, um, not social critique, but there's these social themes that kind of live underneath the surface, right? Uh, the character of Anne in that film, um, her, her position as somebody who has this comfortable, uh, but kind of boring white collar job that impacts where she's at in her life and how she feels kind of day to day, right? And this status being uh, directly in opposition to uh, her boyfriend, Francois's status as a student and an overnight mailman, right? He's not like working in the mines, but it is much more hands-on. Um, and that impacts how he kind of feels day to day as well and how he lives his life. Um, this movie doesn't really have that. Like it does feel uh, a quite a bit more comfort foodie uh, than Aviator's Wife in this manner. Um, I didn't really see those themes present, but that's not really a negative thing. I don't think um, this film may end up because of that feeling uh, a bit more fleeting, I think. But it, it works for me in that manner. I think that one, it's just a it's a really beautiful film. People always point out the use of colors here. There's just so many like vibrant blues and reds and greens and, um, you know, the shirts that they're wearing in the final shot or like everything is like standing out so much, but in this very like natural, wonderful fashion. Um, and then two, and I think the most important thing is that the, uh, the actors here are, are all really incredible and natural. Um, and I think that, that those performances, um, kind of tying back to what I said at the beginning are kind of the real star of the show. I think of this film, um, that, that they're all really wonderful, not just the the new people here, but um, I didn't I didn't even notice that that Anne Laurie uh, Mori, uh, who was in the Aviator's Wife uh, as the character of Lucy, shows up again in this film uh, as Adrienne, and she is like playing a completely different character, uh, and like just did not notice it was her until I did research later. So um, really like this Same. film. Again, it's like it's it goes down really smoothly, I think, but uh, uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, let's let's focus on that a little bit since it's sort of where you left off with Adrienne. Um she was of course played by Andler Murie, uh who was Lucy in The Aviator's Wife. Go back and listen to that episode if you haven't already. It's a great movie. Um and she in this movie plays Alexander I think it was Alexander's first girlfriend, right? Like the girlfriend that we meet him uh with. Yep. Yeah. What one of many oh. supposedly. Yeah, he's a real right. charmer. Um but what place do you feel that character Adrian had in the story? Uh, she sort of goads um, uh, Blanche toward Fabian. Uh, and, you know, she has like, she has meaningful dialogue with this character, but by the end, she's nowhere to be found. She's kind of inconsequential to the end of the movie. Uh, where do you think she fit in this movie? Um, I, I think her character, I think her character largely exists 
every character does this, but I think her character specifically exists to kind of show the very subjective nature of the truth, right? And that how the information that we know about other people and how they feel about us and how they feel about their significant others and, and those around them, um, that's kind of influenced by how we're reading the situation, but also the, the information that we're taking in from others, right? Like, I don't think Adrienne is supposed to be like a conniving, like scheming person, uh, but she has a conversation uh, with Blanche early on in the film where she's, she's talking about uh, Fabian's uh, relationship with Leia, uh, Leah, um, not Leah, uh, Leah. And, and she, she's basically saying that like, Oh, Fabian, he just, he just, he just head over heels in love with Leah, Leah. Fuck. Uh, he, he just loves her. And I kept bringing up you, but he, he wasn't really responding. And like the, the truth of the matter is exactly the opposite. Right. And I, I guess you can read that conversation as her, like, but you know, purposefully messing with Blanche. But I, I think that there is a, Similar to The Aviator's Wife, there is kind of this idea of the interiority, uh, how we truly feel about things, um, really only being uh, interpreted uh, by how others view us, right? And how that interpretation can be like so profoundly messed up and wrong at times. Um, And I think that her character kind of does that. But I think that everybody has that interaction where they think somebody feels this way uh, and it kind of ends up being the, the complete opposite. Um, and it's, it's purely based around these very subjective kind of wishy-washy interactions uh, where, where people are kind of, you know, it's hard to say exactly how you feel and all we have to go off of is interpretation of those events. Yeah, I, I think that's really well said. Um, I was actually thinking of a way to respond to, I guess, a few things that Harry and Aaron both brought up. And I, actually the, the character of uh, Adrienne, I think plays into that um, relatively well. So I'll, I'll, I'll get there eventually, but just like about this movie feeling like, um, comfort food, I, I would agree with that as well, even though, like you said, Aaron, it, it, kind of like a weird conclusion to draw from it. Um, it's certainly like a, a, a vibes movie. Um, uh, and, and so like a, a lot of, a lot of great colors and scenery. So I, like, I wouldn't not dispute that, uh, in the slightest, um, tying in I, I, what Harry, kind of what you were talking about, the sort of like these characters continuously, learning about themselves um but then also like their their inability or i guess like yeah like their inability to go off of like these things that they have learned like often it feels like they're just operating off of like past versions of themselves um like when uh blanche and, and fabian have their time together like we see we see blanche um like she she holds herself back she she has this mental block of you know she can't love this man because uh she's or, or because he's with uh leia i said leia up top i'm zero percent confident that that's right but i'm gonna stick with it um because fabian and leia are together but you, you know leia before she went off on holiday uh or you know for the weekend or whatever she made it clear that uh, she's like exploring other options she's not 100 in on this guy there's there's enough wiggle room there's enough room for doubt where Blanche Cannon should probably explore this, but you know, she's, she's holding herself back. It's, it's playfully frustrating um, watching her kind of go through that like emotional calculus. But, you know, as a viewer, I I feel like, you know, that everybody will get to the points that they need to eventually be like in part, because these conversations that we're having, like, they're not like, it's been said, they're not dense, but they are like thorough and all encompassing enough, uh, almost that like, like we'll, we'll figure it out through enough, almost like trial and error, right. Of, of just like poking and prodding at our emotional sort of interiorities. And that's sort of what, what Adrienne does in a, like the few scenes that she has. Um, there's a, yeah, that conversation 
that she has with Blanche. Blanche tries to storm off like six different times, but Adrian says something that just pulls her back in and like, just, okay, we'll, we'll try this again. We'll try this again. Like, is this clicking with you yet? Does this register? Like, are you like, are we figuring <laughs> this out or not? Um, so uh, again, like the, the trial and error of just uh, poking and prodding, et cetera, trigger phrases, you get it. Um, I can't help but feel like oh, I'm watching it. I've never seen this before, but I, I feel like they'll, they'll get it right. Eventually everybody will sort of end up with quote unquote, who they're supposed to. Um, Adrian being a sort of uh, external instigator without necessarily holding like the BFF status that Leia has with with Blanche is sort of like a nice little zest to, to add to the party. Um, five is five characters is not a crowd. IMO. Yeah, I really liked a lot of what you said. The past versions of of yourself um, in sort of that former perception of yourself getting in the way of what's happening now is really insightful, I think. Um, I think Adrian's a really fascinating character. She's a really, I think she's a really playful character within the context of this movie. I almost wonder if um, Anne-Larie uh, Marie, this is where I'm fucking yeah, up. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. How um, does it feel? It feels bad. I'm, I never claim to speak French, but uh, she's great, obviously, although her hair in this movie is uh, very 80s. Um, but uh, I think that that she she sort of accentuates a lot of the themes of this movie, and even in the sort of again Shakespearean sense, she sort of like demonstrates how frivolous and how um, almost farcical this movie can be, right? Because she is a character we know almost nothing about, which really brings to the forefront the role that she plays within the context of these people's lives. We're like. Poor um, Blanche, who just cannot hide her emotions at all. She just can't. And especially, like, given the Romer-esque context into these people's lives, it's so clear to us how she's feeling at any given moment because of how expressive her face is. I was really, really taken with that performance. I'll have to see the actress and some other stuff. Um, but uh, I think that that it like it demonstrates how the these people are roles to one another, sort of almost first and foremost, and roles to their own self-definition and self-discovery. Where, like you had said, Aaron, Adrienne is like maybe an antagonistic figure. Maybe she does some messing around, but she doesn't do anything to sort of rival um, Blanche's open disdain for her, um, which is which is all born of the sort of like the the role play that Blanche has set up, right? Where it's like in Blanche's mind, this is her rival. And this sort of, this is a person that represents everything she's not and everything she can't be. And to our perspective, that's kind of absurd, right? Because Adrian is just this other person who's like in her own orbit. We know very little about her. She says things that we don't really understand. I really loved in particular, the last scene that we had with her, where all of a sudden she's talking about how she wants a real artist and she she's so attracted to art and she's even like flirting with Blanche a little bit because she she's like you should be an art and I love artists and all this and we're like where the fuck is this coming from and it's like it's like she had had a different movie where she had arrived at these conclusions that was just occurring off camera because she's not really a part of this and I really loved that introduction just to sort of like further round out the context of these people and, and like demonstrate how almost farcically they're like so self-involved and so involved in each other's lives and in figuring themselves out that like they bring these people into their orbits even though as you had said Aaron outside of their like their prescriptive self-perception uh projected onto these people they don't really know that much about Adrian right or or really about what's going on with with one another until they sort of like they build 
into one another and around one another. So I really thought that that Adrian um, was was well positioned in that in the movie for this, despite having a sort of um, smaller role. Yeah, I think her her whole character, um, you know, despite not having what I would call like a complete arc, it does provide that little bit of like like a, a ping pong, you know, where the, where um, if, if we had just kept driving with those same four characters for the entire movie and with all dialogue and all like instances, every thing that needed to put them back in each other's orbit needed to happen with just those few characters probably would have maybe been a little bit strained. Um, I have no doubt in like the directors and performers ability to really bring it all together and make it flow. But having that character is almost like a little, um, almost like a little release valve to, okay, this character came back. You recognize this character and their role in the story, uh, which is why I think uh, both of your point about her, like her being there to like be a reminder for the character and for the audience of the subjectivity of the situation of the, you know, the the, uh, development that's going on that we can't see. Right. Um, Her, I guess Adrian's presence also had another uh, like defining aspect to me where like in a movie. So, driven by and dependent on dialogue clearly um there are a couple of times that conversations fade uh one of them is when blanche is talking to adrienne um or it's just like a hard cut uh i think that's one of the times that it happens and then once with blanche and fabian's like their first wind sailing weekend uh where they just kind of walk off in the distance and the conversation just sort of follows them and we're not privy to like the rest of it next time we see them is they start a new conversation that might be the smallest thing, but um, I will toss to you, Cody. Did you notice that happening? Did it? Did that stick out at all? Uh, like, did it do anything to the scene it was in when you were watching? Uh, I mean, truthfully, not explicitly. I, I think the idea of like putting guardrails on the conversations, especially in movies like this, where like the like it is about the conversations. Like, if there is a sort of fade out ever or the focus shifts between like conversation to action to environment to people walking around and doing things that like are otherwise nonverbal then like like maybe we're meant to get as much out of that sort of uh, i'll just keep using guardrail like to get as much out of that guardrail as like or more so than we were to get out of the conversation i guess to to linger on tennis i I guess for a moment is like you know we see we see we see them uh set up shop at the french open and like we, we see the the crowd that they're with and we don't see any of the action, any of the during, we just see the before and after. So just like we, we see and like how, um, how Blanche is feeling. Uh, we, the sort of like weird de- dejected energy. Um, and like that, like that is all we need to, nothing communicated through words. Um, like I, I would have, uh, gotten us to where we needed to get quicker than us. Just like seeing how everybody's, how everybody felt mm-hmm. after the fact, um, just seeing like Fabian sort of, um, uh, you know, in his own space with, with like keeping an eye, eye on Blanche, um, Blanche feeling, you know, uh, kind of weird about the whole, weird and awkward about the whole situation. Um, so with, yeah, I don't know that, that was, that was how, how I took those. I don't know if that rings true with anybody else though. Yeah. I really liked you. You mentioned that when we were watching as well, um, Jason, I think it's a really good point and it, it, it doesn't exactly contradict something I said earlier, but I had said that, um, that the, 
conversations, even when trivial, are always compelling and always sort of feel important. And that's true. But sometimes in, in this movie, it feels more important that the conversations or the interactions are happening at all. And I think that's that's really highlighted by the fact that they cut the conversation sometime. And so we just see Fabian and Blanche walking together. Right. And they look like lovers they, or they look like old friends or what have you. And oftentimes, like conversations will end up in a different place than, well, they always end up in a different place than they started. But um, the sort of conclusion of the conversation will lead to a, uh, a next step that we didn't see coming. Right. Like Alexander and uh, Leah have that conversation where they say neither of them is going to date anyone for six months. And if they both pull that off, then they'll be together. And we didn't necessarily see this coming, although we should have. But like what they actually meant is they are now together at that point. And there is a sense in which the moment that they both knew that they were single and available, they were together. Or like when uh, when Leah and Fabian are walking into the woods, it's like, you know that that's going to, like the sexual tension between them is just such that it's almost already happened before it happens, right? Where like they're walking together, they're on vacation together, they're wind sailing together. Like clearly these are people who have feelings for one another and just haven't sort of expressed that yet. Um, and that's, that impact is why these characters have such an outs or a seemingly outsized reaction to even sort of like small conversations. Right. Like I think that um, Alexander like purposefully cutting the conversation short when he asks Blanche, if he can drive her to Paris and she's hemming and hawing. And he says, I can see I'm not being helpful. Have a good day. Goodbye. And he's out in like three seconds. Like her reaction to it is not actually outsized because of what that conversation actually represented. Right. Or like all of those times when she being the sort of um, socially awkward or anxious person that she is, when she, um, like walks away earlier or, or makes an excuse to leave. It's like, that is a huge deal within the context of the sort of unspoken um, dynamics between these people. Right. Or like it makes it so that when she's crying in the field, in the clearing, in the woods, although I had sort of joked that, that it, it almost felt like a move, right. It was like, I'm going to start crying now. So Fabian can comfort me. Uh, and I'm going to talk about how this, this uh, relationship is, is grinding me up so bad because that's, that's what's going to forward it. It felt real anyway, right? It felt like her emotions were actually bursting at that point. And I know it's very French, but like that, that is how it felt to me, right? Is that all of these people are sort of like, they are speaking and, and how they're speaking is important, but almost equally important is the fact that they're speaking at all or the fact that they are in these situations with one another. And at one point, they even explicitly call it out, right? Where Leah um, is talking to Alexander and Alexander is disavowing that he ever had any interest in Blanche sort of as a tool to get closer to Leah herself and sort of reframe the situation. And Lee even says like, well, you came here, you knew something was up. And the implication was like, he wouldn't have come to lunch with Leah. Leah, whom he thought was still with Fabian at the time, and Blanche, whom he thought was single at the time, unless he understood that by coming to lunch, there was like some sort of amorous interaction that was supposed to happen between he and Blanche. So that's sort of, that's very insightful for figuring out the sort of like interpersonal dynamics at play here and how just the decisions become very important. Um, without even sort of, well, maintaining this facade of casualness or this facade of sort of um, uh, decorum, I guess. Yeah. Uh, to that, to me, it was like just mechanically, like purely mechanically, the movie is made up of so much talking, so much like meaningful, sometimes pithy, but 
often very like down to earth, just means type dialogue that it was like when, when you're left hanging on every word to like find out what the person's going to say next, how the story is going to develop, how like what new thing we're going to learn about this person and how they view themselves and the person that they, they love or the kind of person they want to love. What happens when that is just like, what happens when you actually are left hanging rather than, you know, with complete statements or with full scenes that are left? I think that goes a long way toward establishing what you're talking about, Harry. But even in like in the microcosm, um, it, it like made me feel like, oh, yeah. And then like and then what? And then it's like, well, you don't you don't get the rest of that one. You uh, you, you get you get what you got in that particular uh, dialogue, in that particular interaction. And now we'll move forward into like what we're supposed to learn next about the the the, you know, whoever, whatever two young lovers we're seeing on screen. I think the next thing that happens after that instance with Blanche and Fabian is, um, I think she, he takes her to the little like playground thing that he said that he had once taken Leah to that she never wanted to come back to. And it's like, okay, this is clearly he's like making moves. He's, uh, building like into the, what would then become that very dramatic scene, um, where, you know, they, they end up sort of falling for each other, finally, finally consummate it with a kiss. Uh, and then she says, no, I can't, I'm too French and sort of, um, says, you know, calls the thing off for a little while before she, before the final act turns and we do get the BF swap. Um, Harry. Oh yeah. I was just going to say just one, one more thing about that and about, uh, well, about that situation with she and Fabian and about the fact that Aaron, you had shouted out that Blanche is the main character. I think that's really true. And I think that that helps me understand why I find this movie so comforting the way that you uh, said it was, because I, I agree. I think this is a really comforting, empathetic movie. And I think that it's, it's almost supposed to be comforting in the sense that I think that that this movie really instructs you based on Blanche's um, character trajectory. And she has a lot of, I mean, I think she is a character with sort of internal strife, right? I think that that in a big way, she doesn't feel like she's a player um, in this in this grand sort of game of boyfriends and girlfriends that's playing out, right? Like she hasn't been in a relationship in two years. She continually alludes to the idea that she's ugly or unappealing or sort of frumpish um, or sort of overly serious. She really chafes when people uh, say that she's not Alexander's type. And that is clearly what she wants to be. She wants to be something that she isn't really, which is a sort of a party sort of player like Leah is, which is part of why she's so attracted to Leah and everything Leah represents to her. Um, But I think that like by the end of this movie, we understand that um, or Blanche understands about herself that she always was a player in this game to the same extent that everybody else was. She just has legitimate different tastes and desires, and that is okay, right? I think that she has a lot of self-judgment towards herself for not being sort of attractive in the in the right ways or not being attracted to the right ways, and she's trying to sort of force that on herself. Um, and, and has a lot of self-consciousness, which is why she sort of freezes around Alexander, right? And she thinks that that's because she's not capable or she's not worthy or she's not adequate for becoming that person that she wants to be until by the end of this movie, her arc is sort of that, that just wasn't her and that's okay. And, and she has something that is equally valid and equally exciting in the form of Fabian, right? And she was actually just meant to be with this person, And that sort of helps her understand herself better. And I think that what's so comforting about that is it sort of like suggests that who you are is okay, right? And you don't need to have this 
level of self-judgment or self-criticism about that, right? And and that's sort of how Blanche uses Leah and their relationship is is Leah is so sort of accepting of who she is um and and makes her a part of this self journey of self discovery and all of it is sort of internally valid right and i think that um that really works for me uh in this movie and i think that it it's it's there's something really comforting about it because we've all sort of felt like blanche at one time or another right where it's like it's not just that we're not that something's not clicking or that we can't find the right people. It's that the reason we can't find the right people is because there's something wrong with us, right? That like, we're not clever enough or we're not witty enough or like, we're not, we're not appreciated because there's nothing to appreciate. And I think that this movie really demonstrates how it's all a matter of context and timing and sort of the journey. Um, And I really appreciated that about it. Yeah. This movie gives you nothing if not, if not context. Uh, let's see. I think I'm going to lead to final thoughts with that. Uh, is there anything anybody wants to get off their chest that we haven't already touched on? Yeah, this is the, this is uh, maybe, may, I don't know if anybody's going to follow up this bit, but this is the most French fucking movie. Uh, they're, they're breaking up yes. with somebody, uh, breaking up with your partner because, uh, as, uh, uh, Fabian says later in the film, we just can't enjoy our vacations together is the most <laughs> fucking French. That is the most French reason for breaking up with somebody. Uh, there is, there is no other example more French than just like, is my mandatory government vacations. She doesn't go. Uh, I'm going to stop doing French accents, but like, don't that's very, Never. it's just like the perfect, uh, uh like French leisure kind of vibe to it. Uh, yeah. The only thing that would make this movie more French is if everybody was smoking all the time and they're not smoking enough. I think they really are. That's like the um, only thing. There are a couple of times I think you can see main characters smoking. Uh, there is a scene where somebody just orders. I, maybe there's something sandwiched in between the pieces, but like just bread at the beach, just like a, a foot and a half of baguette. That's inc- like <laughs> who does that? But the fucking French, the French, um, the French. There's also another line. I'm trying to pull it up now on a random subtitles site and I might not get it in time, but there is a line in that one, like um, uh, meadow scene, like the middle of the movie, Fabienne and Blanche, where she says what I think might be the most French thing I've ever heard. It's about like the sunrise and the angst and pain you feel with it. And it's right. like, this is, this is, this is, you're, you're really, you're really milking this, aren't you? Like maybe there's actually not that much to say about this thing, but you are really putting on your poet's beret and, and thinking yeah. about it hard. It, it, uh, 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 two, two things. Uh, one, it is wild. One, th- one note that I took down was that this is like a romance movie, right? Like it is in that genre, but it like avoids pretty much any of like the shit that we've gotten used to like watching like american romance movies but it still pedals in the same shit like the the thing that harry talked about earlier the point he brought up were like both you know uh both uh fabian and uh blanche both have this kind of fantasy of like this kind of like this classic knight in shining shining armor situation where they like they meet somebody mysterious and they have a relationship and then they they leave on their ways and it's like this idealized kind of romantic image of of what romance is right Mm -hmm. and then they learn that that's not like the reality like that is the same shit that like the movie pretty woman does like that's the exact same like metaphor being used but like i don't hate it here and i hate it so much in that movie yeah um uh the other the other thing oh sorry no, I didn't want to let stop you. You can go ahead. 
I was just going to say, what is it? What what is it about French uh, uh, like restaurant culture where like if you want something, you just like yell across the restaurant. Garçon, you're just like two two coffee, and it's just like the guy is like on the other end of the restaurant. And you're just like yelling over like a busy line. Like if you were to do that in the United <laughs> States, you would get slapped. You would get you would get your shit rocked if you were to just like yell Perrier at the guy while they're walking away. You know what I mean? You're not going anyway. to the right place. You're not. Uh, yeah, you're maybe. not at the right restaurants. Um. I think the Frenchness of this movie really does like ratchet it up though. Like you were saying, those tropes do exist. Those character arcs and like those um, motivations are still like, I won't say universal to romance, but they do exist here. But the Frenchness gives you like this gigantic layer of self doubt and uh, like apprehension toward like admitting or vocalizing or externalizing that instead you get lines like and i found it it's when the sun starts to set you feel a pang of anxiety and i feel good too good in fact and that that doesn't mean anything well, it mean, doesn't mean anything in the about context too good of, about her relationship with fabian but right it is just very i don't know very like sa- sanguine in that moment i'm uh, with when, you jason i'm with you it's it, kind of gibberish well i'm right. not I'm not disparaging it. I'm saying it like it enhances that moment, right? Because I'm now with this person in their feeling, despite reading these words on a piece of paper, they don't really line up with the mood of the, of the scene. Anyway, uh, the, the more French it gets, the better it gets. IMO. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, really agree with that. And I think it's like a feature, right? It's absolutely something. I mean, sorry, I've been in my thoughts about this a lot because we just saw licorice pizza yesterday and sort of similarly to that movie. Like I kept trying to think like, why is this set in the 1970s? Like, is it just, is it just that PTA had a ton of nostalgia for this time period? And the answer is yes, of course, but also like the fact that it's set when it is really does enhance the story so much and it enhances your understanding of the characters so much. And like, I think that um, the fact that these are like leisurely sort of like nouveau riche or, or at least very bougie um, young French people in this sort of like trendy French town in the eighties is like exactly, the right time period for accentuating the semi-farcical nature of this. It's right. It's like, these are people with too much time on their hands who are very, very frivolous as a result, right? It's like, this is what happens when you've got nothing to do except for reflect on yourself all of the time. And you become this sort of like hilariously insufferable romantic. Um, and I love it, right? I mean, like I, it, it super works for this movie, but it is like, it is like Frenchness taken to its logical extreme in so many ways. Right. And like, maybe it's, it's the fact that we're Americans that makes us feel this way, but like it really, really does work as a setting for playing up what I believe is, is really the point of this movie in the first place. Hey, what's with, uh, what's with Blanche's apartment that looks like the, the Parthenon was, or something. Ooh, that one was, shot of it, like it out the, out the exterior, like more than yeah. halfway through the movie, she's like walking into, it looks like a, it looks like like a UN building. It's like yeah. where you live. I guess. It was American Psycho, French Psycho. Uh, Jason pointed out brilliantly. I thought that later on, she's after she's she's been involved with Leah for so long, and and she's sort of developing these relationships. Um, she's actually shopping for furniture, um, which I really loved. It's like oh, like like literally Blanche's interior space is filling up, right? Sorry, uh, I, I want I wanted to get back to the. Mic. the it's gonna make a sec joke. Continue. Uh, well, <laughs> her, uh, her relationship with Fabian, you might say. <clears throat> I mean, <laughs> hmm. okay. So I, I, I did want to. Aaron, does this deserve 
the Aaron Grossman Film Department Quality Index? Uh-huh. Oh, I you know pe- people people keep. I, I get so much mail. I'm not even talking about email. I get physical mail. You know, we're gonna I, get it I, trending I down, on Twitter. Is what we're gonna get? Yeah, I, I get my little mail key. I go down, uh, pop it open. Letters fall to the ground every single day. People saying, "When are you gonna bring back the Aaron Grossman Film Department Quality Index?" You know, you did it for Wong Kar Wai. When are you gonna bring it back? I just, you know, I would say it's her apartment is uh, like weirdly sterile. Uh, I think maybe not what I was picturing for France. Maybe that's just kind of my thought, but it, it looks slightly uncomfortable. Although I like carpeted floors, so it's mm-hmm, kind of nice mm-hmm. in that manner. What yeah. about uh, what about after she starts to decorate it with that uh, striking red curtain? The, and yeah, it's better. The chair placement is better. Um, kind of similar, uh, uh, somewhat separate topic, but semi related. How boring did that party look? That looked like the most like high looked- school graduation ass party <laughs> yeah. that I've ever seen. Just wall. people like standing around a punch bowl. No, no, this is the one before they go to that other party, like the the house party they go to, where it's just like sitting people sitting That's, on the lawn. That is Ugh. one of like two moments where Harry leaned over and said, "This is the Frenchest thing ever," because they're just open bottles of wine in like buckets of water, and people sort of I don't know, just sitting around on white chairs on a lawn. It's very incredibly like rurally yeah, French. Like, These this is what the revolutionaries were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> this is these are the heads they wanted. Um, Cody, you've been turning that mic on and off. Were there any final thoughts from you before we well, go to the final? I'm turning segment? it on and off to to uh, my to sharp agree eyes. With, agree, yeah, agree with the the quips of my my fellow fellas. Um, it's the golf I guess two, clap of the podcasting world. It's the, the <laughs> mic right. on. Say on off on off. Um, that's right. Um, I I do just have two quick ones. Um, earlier in the in the film when I was trying to get a read on Fabian, um, and just like. Seeing this dry ass dude like not crack a smile ever, it's like Jesus. This is going to be a, a quite something to watch. I wonder what's going to happen with this guy. Um, and then by the, I mean he he smiles throughout the course of the film. There's one at, at the end when Blanche, uh, when he and her are together, and she tells him she's no longer interested in Alexander, uh, and he just flashes this brief but humongous smile. It's like ah, nice. We get we get ours viewers um i said that out loud and the um i know we touched on it earlier that uh that scene where it's again blanche and fabian they're sort of in that clearing and um (laughs) just like i I think it was fabian who who said it right where he's like man i i'd always dreamed about fucking someone in a forest if only i could have sex with someone in a forest right now (laughs) wouldn't that be something hands around the forest (laughs) Is there anybody sure around here nice. I could do that with? Hmm. What? Oh, I'm Blanche, just going to lay Do you down. see anybody? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's um, that was pretty good. I don't. Probably not intentionally funny, but that got a chuckle. I, th- I kind of thought. It, I I thought that the slow pan okay. of the trees was very intentionally hilarious, and also like Blanche being like, "Oh, it is my dream as well." <laughs> it's like, all right, guys, like maybe just make it happen now. Um, I gotta I gotta conclude Year of the Simp on a strong exactly. Note. Uh, I, Fabian really pissed me off because it was like, oh, I get it. If you want to be uh, brooding and uh, dark and socially awkward, it helps to be really hot. So that that's the element that I've been missing all my life is that I want to be right. like Fabian, but I forgot that you have to be very hot to be like Fabian. So, right. Damn. You, you've got to, you've got to be a shaggy haired Rami Malik. That's exactly right. We, we came up with so many different th- guys that that guy. Oh man. Like. I, I, what, who did we come up with Jason? 
He's tall, smooth Peter Dinklage. Um, he is. Uh, did one of us say James Remar or no? No, but but that is also accurate. Um, what did I, uh, man? Now I can't even think about who else I said. Oh, I uh, like Hugh Hugh Grant uh, crossed mm. with a second actor, but I can't remember the second actor now. He is like he's got that Cro-Magnon thing going on. A just little a little bit, bit of, of Brandon, like Brendan Fraser as well. Oh, a little bit, yeah, with the banana mm. hair. I can see that. I can see that. Uh, well, that is final thoughts on the movie. Uh, go see it at the try line. If you can, you got a little bit more time as of this airing. Uh, but you can also find it on the internet. Um, I won't tell you where, uh, infer from, um, what, what we've been talking about. If you can't see it at the trial where you can find it on the internet. Uh, but we do have one final segment of our show because we can, we do not want to let you go on such a note. Uh, we must ring in the final segment of our podcast with the help of co-host Harry. Thank you, Jason. I love to introduce this segment. It is the segment that we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Hubba hubba auga. Thank you, fellas, for that introduction. Uh, I think that went swimmingly. Um, we've only got a few weeks on the calendar here to spend with uh, a director uh, uh, extraordinaire, Eric Romer. So I figured we ought to make time for some Romer's Riddles. Um, which isn't to say these are riddles per se. This is um, the same kind of director-centric trivia we've done many times before, and alliteration is a good time. Um, so here's what's going to happen. I will ask y'all a series of questions uh, pertaining to Eric Romer. After each statement, I will ask y'all in, say, alphabetical by last name order to respond. Um, I'll cue you in when it's when it's your time to, to venture, I guess. You'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer in some cases. And the person with the most points at the end will win. As always, Trivia Mafia, uh, shout out to Trivia Mafia. Their rules apply here as well as in uh, Trivia Mafia arenas. And that is... Uh, Use your noodles, not your Googles. Words to, to live by. And with that, let's go ahead and jump in here uh, for our first question. We're, uh, it's been a while. We're going to invoke the Rashomon rule, which is that no film needs to be longer than Rashomon. And that is a perfect film. Uh, for those who don't know, perfect film released in 1950 and directed by Akira Kurosawa. Rashomon comes in at 88 minutes. So um, I'm going to ask you all what percentage of, uh, of works directed by Eric Romer abide by the Rashomon rule. Furthermore, I'm going to refine the field considerably for this question um, because I felt like it and because Romer has directed a variety of things over the years. Um, so for the purposes of this exercise, we're going to include only the works included in, in two separate box sets that pull from his filmography. We've got oh, the, six moral, the six moral tales uh, box set that's from the... Uh, Criterion Collection and the Comedies and Proverbs set uh, put out by Arrow. Um, I mean, th- those are probably you can define those outside of the box sets, but I'm a, a I live under capitalism, so that's the only way in which I can contextualize my world. Um, each of those sets includes six titles, and there's no overlap between them. So we've got twelve works total in consideration. Just full disclosure. So of those, uh, the works included in those two Romer sets, what percentage of those um, of those films abide by the Rashomon I'm rule? I'm going to say zero. Jason. Jason is going to say zero percent. Just saying. Uh, <laughs> say, uh, it's actually it's actually going to be Aaron next. So Aaron, if you wanted yeah, to say point. what you were going to say, yeah, but then I'm screwed when Harry says two, which was going to be my trap. Do you do you understand? Uh, oh, I'm sure. going to say twenty four. Twenty four. 
24% says Aaron and Harry. Yeah, Harry, what's your guess? Now, see, if I was thinking the way Aaron's thinking, I would say 25% just to sort of devote, you know. But I, I don't actually think that. I think that I'm going to go with 8% or 112 I think that Eric uh, yeah. got it got it right one time. He got it right one time. Um, all right, so... Uh, stalling a bit as I do mental math. Uh, never mind. This is easy. Of the 12 works included in the two aforementioned box sets, two of them come in at or under 88 minutes, which puts us at it's a uh, 16.66 repeating me, percent. Baby. So, That's yep. So me, Aaron baby. is, Aaron is closer. <laughs> ah! Um, yeah. Uh, linger on this, uh, lingering on this a little bit more. We do a lot of, we do a lot of free plugs on this, uh, non-profit, uh, not-for-profit podcast. And, uh, here's some more, uh, both of the box sets I mentioned are at the time of this recording discounted through their respective vendors. Criterion is having their yearly 30% off holiday sale on discs, uh, discs rather, and merchandise and Arrow Films has, uh, has their set, the comedies and proverbs one at almost half price. Uh, I actually ordered that one from Arrow basically, um, immediately after seeing the aviator wife at the trial and that's uh a-r-r-o-w right not e-r-o that's right yep exactly arrow arrow like the thing legolas shoots out that's uh, that's a shame that's your closest connection to what arrows are yeah well legolas is a movie and we're talking about movies you're right you're you're exactly right cody that's yeah. Um, we haven't uh, you know we haven't talked about Broken Arrow on the podcast. That's uh, what is that a uh, Jean Claude Van Damme movie? We've only talked about so. our targets. So, you know, I, I've got limitations here. Um, I'm going to move on to the second question. Uh, in many IMDb uh, actor and director profiles, they've got a section dedicated to trademarks of that particular artist. What I'm going to do here is list three Eric Romer trademarks, um, again, per IMDb. Two uh, two of them will be real. One of them will be fake. And your job will be to pick out the fake trademarks. I'm just going to read them one at a time here. First off, concentrates on intelligent, articulate protagonists who frequently fail to see past their own shortcomings. So that's the first one. The second one, tends to spend considerable time in his films showing his characters going from place to place, walking, driving, bicycling, or commuting on a train. And then the third one usually focuses, uh, uh, focuses rather, usually focuses, I can talk, on desire ricochets between and within various pairings. So which one of those is the fake IMDb listed trademark, Jason? I'm not going to think about about this very hard. Right, fair enough. Jason says uh, the first one. Aaron, what do you say? Two. Two for Aaron and what for Harry? I think I will also go with number one. Ooh. Uh, oh. Oh, no. The spread is not covered. Um, and it turns out that is fortuitous because the fake trademark is A. I did tweak this <sighs> one a bit. Uh, the original entry was the following concentrates on intelligent, articulate protagonists who frequently fail to own up to their desires. That honestly, own up to their desires. I, I don't know, man. Do we think <sighs> Francois is intelligent and articulate? He's he's an, he's an, yeah, he works at a post yeah, office. I don't know. He, articulate, he maybe for, not intelligent. Wait, he works at a post Jason? office. He's uh, he's got he's got a good a good head on his shoulders. That's true. All postmen are are great. That's good point. Right. That's right. We support the USPS. I thought I thought he was talking yeah. about articulate, and I didn't see a one for one distinction between articulateness right. and the post office. But I do see the one to one intelligent. Yeah, uh, for for a horrent twenty year old, Francois is you know he's doing his best. Bless him. Um, so we come away uh, out of that with Aaron getting the point the first round, and Jason and Harry both getting a point that round. Uh, we're all tied up. 
one across the board. And we've got three more questions to go. So buckle up, you little freaks. For number three, we're going to take a peek at some of Eric Romer's uh, most favoritist films. Uh, so in 1961, he uh, apparently submitted a letter to Sight and Sound with his picks for the 10 best films of all time. I'm going to list three films. Two of them were included on his list, and one of them was not. It was left off entirely. It's made up. Uh, your job is to pick out the film that does not belong on Eric Romer's top 10 list. Um, so first one here, Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. Second one, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. And finally, Robert Bresson's Pickpocket. So which one of those was not included by Romer on his top 10 films list in I'm 1961? I'm going to say Jason? Uh, Pickpocket. All right. Jason is going to say Pickpocket. Uh, Aaron, what do you say? Uh, I'm... Uh, Pickpocket is my least favorite of those films, and Vertigo is my most favorite. But I think I'm gonna go Vertigo. I think I'm gonna go Vertigo. Something's drawing me towards it. All right, um, <laughs> kind of like what happens in Vertigo. Uh, and Harry, what is your pick? I agree with everything Aaron said, uh, and I was also going to go with Vertigo. So I'll stick to my guns. All right, sticking to the guns. Uh, the correct answer here Son is a, a Sherlock Jr. Um, so no points. Try to double there. up. Uh, Romer did have some Keaton representation on his list, though. Um, he said the general. Uh, Buster Keaton's the general, ladies and germs. Uh, so no points that round. We're still tied up at one apiece. We've got uh, two questions left for this fourth question here. Similar to what we've done in previous games, I'm going to read off three quotes allegedly uttered by Eric Romer. Two of these utterances will be for real again allegedly, and one will be fake. Your task is to pick out the fake one. So I'll read off the three quotes and leave it to each of you fellas to pick out the imposter afterward. So first quote here. I love cars and hate the environment. (laughs) I'm Eric Romer and I (laughs) steal from my mom's purse. Um, Okay, no. uh, First quote for me. My mother loves my film career. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, the, what follows are the uh, three canonical quotes for this question, starting with, what I would most like to do is to make movies with a completely invisible camera. That's the first one. The second one here, the classical age of cinema is not behind us. It is happening now. That's the second one. And the third one, we have to show what lies beyond behavior while knowing we can't show anything but behavior. So those are the three. Which one of those is the fake Romer, Quoty, Jason? Jason is going to say A. Aaron, what's your guess? You say this is the last question? Uh, There is one question after this. One question after this. Uh, I'm going to go B. Aaron is going to go B. And Harry, what's your picky? I really hope it's not C because that's one of the best articulations of like a film film person's career that I've ever heard come from a film person. Uh, But I'm going to go with A like Jason did because I think that like in both of these movies that we've watched so far, there are like crowd reactions, which I feel like is not a thing you do if you want an invisible camera. Maybe he wants the invisible camera so that there aren't crowd. Maybe he's like, these people keep (laughs) reacting to my fucking camera. If 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 this was invisible, we wouldn't have this problem. Why put those shots in the movie then? They didn't have green screen and CGI and rotoscope in Harry. He's he's like these fucking extras. (laughs) He had to pay them all thanks afterwards. Uh, uh, Much like an athlete would, Romer likes to hear it from the crowd. Uh, The imposter is B. The 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 second quote. (sighs) The the actual alleged reading of this quote is as follows: The classical age of cinema is not behind us, Uh. but ahead. But ahead. 
Um, so Aaron gets the point there. Uh, it's a two one one for Aaron, Harry, Jason, um, respectively. Or if you, for listeners at home, if you prefer Aaron, Jason, Harry, uh, also respectively. Uh, it is still very much anybody's game. Uh, for our final question, uh, let's you know what? Let's go ahead. Let's take a step back and recognize Romer as he's an all time filmmaker and one of the greatest to come out of France. Uh, what I'm going to list, uh, what I'm going to list off here, is uh, four films that had either entirely or partially French productions. Uh, and what I'm going to ask each of y'all to do is rank them in order of most to least frequently logged on Letterboxd. So Letterboxd are our best friend and worst enemy, as uh, recent noty sessions uh, have shown. You will get a point for each correctly slotted film. And again, there will be four films total in the mix. So if you get the order perfectly correct, you'll get four points. If um, two of them are slotted correct in the right places, you'll get two points, etc. You can imagine. Uh, with that, I will now read the list of films y'all are trying to rank from most to least frequently logged on Letterboxd, and then I'll vamp a little at the end uh, to give Jason some time. So we've got Mulholland Drive from 2001, Inside Lewin Davis from 2013, Paddington 2 from 2017, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire from 2019. So again, with those four films, we're looking to rank them in order of most to least frequently logged on Letterboxd. Letterboxd, um, kind of like, uh, uh, what is it called? Goodreads is an environment where you can kind of show your friends and followers what you've been consuming media wise. Um, but instead of books, it's, uh, it's movies. And so that's, um, that's what we're talking about. Uh, Letterboxd, by the way, Hey, free plugs. Um, if you like what you see, you, uh, uh, free, free to, free to use, free to join, free to sign up. They have different um, pro and patron levels that give you all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, and, all right, all right, like, all right. Uh, streaming service filtering. All right, Jason, you ready? I can. I can, Cody, I can, be done can I talking. say that this is an excellent, a truly deliciously hard selection of four yes. movies? Like, yeah, you really. I, I'm really yeah. struggling with this. This, this kind of sucks. Yeah. Uh, no, it doesn't. It's fun. Uh, well. Uh, I'll no. I a if it sucks, okay. that's a that's a that's a compliment, and don't take that out of context, <clears> producer <throat> Jason. Um, but are you are you ready I to, ready to, to, to stuff and your I'm also ready to send you what will become your second arsenic letter, <laughs> if I if I am proven incorrect on oh, any of this. No. Uh, we have. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna <laughs> get a little bit spicy with it. Um, I'm assuming family film Paddington Two is most popular. I am assuming, despite being one of the more recent on this on this list. Um, I'm going to say that Portrait of a Lady on Fire, just because Letterbox has attracted a lot of new users in the last couple of years, and that is a very popular, very recent film. Uh, well, very popular, quote unquote, uh, in comparison here. I'm going to say Mulholland Drive, just because it is one of the oldies that uh, people will have uh, had more time to log, more of the uh, cinema, cinema, what are they, whatever they're called, um, the, the people who like movies, uh, have had time to go back to Letterboxd and log it. I'm going to say that Inside Lewin Davis comes in last, not in terms of quality, of course, uh, just in terms of popularity and, oh, I haven't seen that Coen Brothers movie. Uh, mind from a lot of a lot of what I assume are letterbox users. Um, so we've got Paddington, Portrait, Mulholland, Inside in that order from most to least popular. Thank you, thank you. Gotcha. Thank you. Um, I will add no editorializing, but I encourage all of you to uh, you too as well. Just like you did, Jason. I love hearing what everybody's thought processes are like. Um, context, much like like Romer is interested in. Am I right? Uh, we're gonna move 
down the line to Aaron. Uh, Aaron, what are what's your uh, kind of sequential uh, your series of, of guesses here? You know, what my my list is different, and I'm um you know you just you just always second guess yourself. Here here's my my thoughts on this because it is uh, as Jason described a balancing act between films that are. Uh, popular with the core letterbox audience, but also fi- I feel like like he he mentioned uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire being uh, recent, but like I feel like recency might even help because like adoption of that website's yeah. picked up some. I use what I'm going to do. I'm going to go number one, uh, Mulholland Drive. I just have to imagine that letterbox people are logging that all the time. I, I, you know, uh, two. I'm going to go Paddington two which is a recent film, but I think it puts it over my number three, which is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And then four, I'm going to go Inside Lewin Davis. That is my we are, list. We are I think close, I could be wrong closely aligned. All those, but. Closely aligned indeed. All right, perfect. Those are noted in uh, etched in, in a stone tablet. They're already up on a mountain somewhere for the, the whole world to see uh, as will Harry's soon. Once I hear his picks, Harry, what you got? Yeah. Well, um, my list was exactly Jason's um, for much the same reasons. I think that just, I, I always give, since I was burned last week, um, I think that movies that came out well letterboxed was a thing is, are just going to have like a tremendous advantage over even movies like Mulholland drive that are sort of favorites of the type of person that would be on letterboxed. Um, I'm thinking, Maybe I should switch uh, Lewin Davis and Mulholland Drive just so that Jason and I you don't believe end up yourself. with the exact same number. Of- no, no you I, t- I mean, you two could win together. You know, isn't that isn't that wonderful? Two people banding together to take down the champion, you know, like a David yeah, and Goliath yeah. story. But there's like I, two, yeah, no, there's two little Davids that are. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with my original list. So my list is Jason's, which is to say Paddington 2 is number one. Portrait is number two. Mulholland Drive is number three. And Inside Lewin Davis is number four. Roger Dodger. Uh, well, thank you, Harry. And thank you, uh, all three of you gentlemen for your guesses. Uh, I am now going to reveal the, um, the, the actual order, um, as of all, well, I can't imagine it's changed from last night. Um, the, the correct order of most to least frequently logged of these, uh, uh semi or entirely French produced films on letterboxd. The order is as follows. Most to least frequently logged among users. We've got first, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Fuck. Followed by Mulholland Drive. Followed by Inside Lewin Davis and finally Paddington 2. No points awarded. (laughs) No points awarded to any user. (laughs) uh, 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 Kind of wild to see. um, Gotta gotta love the Paddington love. Um, See Paddington first and in the case of Jason and Harry um, getting them slotted correctly except Paddington Paddington first instead of last. You know what? I think it. I think we just yeah. the 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 letterbox popularity weighting scale, which is something I'm the Aaron Grossman letterbox popularity theoretical weighting scale here is going to be a combination of recency and hipster appeal. It is those two things weighted together. Paddington, you get a little bit of the hipster appeal and you get the recency, but I don't think as much as Portrait. In, yeah. Okay. That's that's what I'm going to do from here on out for these. I We're going to uh, test it. But I'll find out how to. I'm trying. Goddamn. Yeah. Could you repeat uh, that the list one more time? Most to least. Yep. 
Yep. So the yeah. So the list here. Uh, I guess I'll say a, a few things uh, really quick, just to to put a nice big holiday bow on this. Um, final score here. No points given out. Aaron won with two points uh, f- for the entire game. Jason and Harry both came away with one point apiece. Those were Romer's riddles. The order again: um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, Mulholland Drive, Inside Lewin Davis, and then Paddington Two. I'm a fan of new metrics. So Aaron, if if you ever you know publish something about this, hey, just yeah. Let me uh, let me proofread that. that big I've I've got a research study that we're we're going to query the entire letterbox database and come up with a, a an objective metric for me to win further Cody's notice. Unfortunately, Aaron can't write or read, which is why he likes movies. I, I am paying other people on Upwork, so maybe you should think about that. Hey, uh, Harry, uh, sorry, no, I I don't mean this to be mocking. Would you have won if you had stuck with your original? Uh, I, I would have received a, a one more point, so I would have tied with you. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, what I think. Well, what I think happened you. there is that we all saw that big plate of points. We thought saw that fucking smorgasbord, that fucking spirited away buffet of points, and we're all like, "No, thank you." Just, just a a light. And we were all I'm like, full. "Daddy's got just a cards and just a little treat." No, no, no. Just a little, I, I could just a little I treat for me. Actually, all I, I need is possibly. a little spring. No, I've, I've already eaten. I could not possibly. I'm yeah, we, stuffed. We weren't tripped <laughs> So we came away successfully. Man, when, no, no. Um, I, what? Well, I, mean, I did. You know, we're all kind of, uh, we, we came as equals, we leave as equals, right? So um, that, that's kind of how this podcast works. I will share uh, in this I don't need you with all uh, of charity you. or pity. Thank you so much, Cody, for another rousing edition of Cody's Noties. Uh, I cannot believe that fucking happened with the last question. That is one of the funniest things that's happened on this podcast in a long time. Uh, and uh, But hey, if you want to know more of those funny things that happen time to time, uh, you can subscribe to us wherever you're listening, I assume, uh, unless you're listening on an MP3 player. You probably can't listen there, but uh, cheers to you for that. Um, this, is, uh, this has been our episode about um, Boyfriends and Girlfriends, also known as My Girlfriend's Boyfriend. Uh, playing currently at the Trilon. Check it out there if you can. Check it out on the internet if you can't. Uh, but follow along for more uh, Eric Romer films from the 1980s. They're going to be playing at the Trilon, uh, followed by some cool holiday programming and some really cool stuff coming up next year. Just check the calendar on Trilon.org to see what you want to see. Uh, hey, if you're listening and really passionate about it, let us know. Uh, we might be there and uh, hey, we'll be talking about the movies that go on there. So get in touch with us. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. My name is Jason and you can find me on Twitter at my Twitter on Twitter.com at Twitter.com slash Nintendoofus. Yeah. Uh, thanks, fellas, for talking about this film. Thanks to, to everybody uh, who's been listening. And for those who have been listening for a while now, um, know that I'm obligated to share whenever I've got um, new kind of temporary uh, cohabitants in my apartment. I'm watching uh, not one, but two cats uh, for a friend right now. Their names are uh, uh, Norma and Junie. And right now they they are, uh, you may have heard a little bell. I don't know. One of them just woke up from a, a little uh recording snooze um my my voice put her to sleep um yeah so they may get shout outs they may disrupt um uh, if they want me to like um throw things and have them retrieve them but just so you know that's that's something that's happening um i've got them for another uh oh like four or five weeks or so from now so that's that's what's going on in my life hopefully y'all have good things going on in your lives instagram instagram hey yeah uh follow me on the gram um uh, Cody Narvison, if you want to see fun weekly updates of what those those goobers are getting up to, the adventures they get on in my very limited one-bedroom apartment. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Hey, thanks so much for that Cody's no- Noti segment of... <gasps> 
Romer's riddles. Sick, you know, I had sick. to do it. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, what was really so disgraceful about that is I think about Letterbox so much, you guys. It's sad. I tweeted about Letterbox while we were recording, and I still didn't get a single <laughs> point. Man, brutal, just brutal. Uh, but I've been Harry Mack, and you can see my tweets, I guess, about Letterboxd on uh, Twitter at Shiitake Harry. That's all I've got to say. It's your turn now, Aaron. All right. I would like to say that uh, no one caught that my quote at the beginning of this episode was not actually a quote from this film, but is a quote that I got from Google image searching boyfriends and girlfriends quotes and uh, just finding a cheesy Facebook uh, uh, wait, quote about wait, love. You can good. put in the so effort to do that it. shit, but you can't put in the effort to find out how to pronounce these fuckers' names. What's wrong with you? No, their they're, they're, they're language is yeah. some sort of alien script. Yeah, it's our right uh, as Americans will... never to pronounce French. Okay, so French he's just correctly. living up. That's, yeah. We earned that. I will put in the effort for any uh, uh, non-European colonial power, but for the French, I mean, come on. What do you expect from me? Uh, my name's Aaron. You can find me on Twitter, uh, at RB, please. You're wrong. I don't like to push. I'm, I'm no Romeo. The fact is, girls like me. It's given me bad habits. It can be a disadvantage. They seek me out, so I just relax. Means I don't always wind up with the best. If I like a girl, I'll meet her sooner or later, better later than too soon. Take us. I'm glad I met you now, not six months ago. Sans amour.